Good evening, Doxology. My name's Leo, for those of you who don't know me, and I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, we offer these as our gift to you. Uh, they're in the back of the pews right in front of you. You can also follow along online. Uh, again, the, chap- the verse is um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Well, greetings, friends. Uh, Bring greetings from good old Charm City this afternoon. Anybody know where Charm, like what Charm City is? Where is that? Okay, a few people. Okay. I didn't even know what it was until I moved there. Um, greetings from Baltimore City. It's good to be with you. Um, I, uh, my name's Adam. I've been really getting to follow doxology closely and praising God from uh, afar as uh, God's been working through your church through the twisty turns of COVID. So it's just a blessing to be here. And I believe I'm number four in guest preachers. And uh, Pastor Steve, I'm just part of his scheme to bring up uh, less gifted, less charismatic, less good-looking, less buff uh, preachers to tee him up for a hearty return uh, when he comes back soon. And so I'm honored to fill that role uh, today. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so humbling to be here before you because um, I, I don't deserve to be here. I should not be standing here uh, preaching God's Word and much less uh, a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Uh, Pastor Steve's known me a long time, and even before I knew Jesus— and um, it was hard to believe with all the stuff that I did back then. He even wanted to be my friend, much less uh, get to marry his sister. Uh, but here I am. Um, and because before I knew Jesus, I was, I was an imposter of a Christian. Uh, I was a manipulator of women. I was a, uh, an addict to seeking pleasure. And Jesus met me after my first year in college. Uh, I, I really entered into a season of discouragement, of depression. I was drinking so deeply of everything the world had to offer, yet I was coming up just thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. And he met me through a group of other Christians that I met one summer. And really, it's through their word, through their lifestyle. I, I heard the gospel really for the first time that, um, that Jesus was the one to fulfill my thirst. Uh, to, to be, as he said, streams of ever-living uh, ever water flowing into his people, that um, I didn't need to look to all these things of the world to give me satisfaction. He poured out his, his grace on me abundantly. He gave me a new identity so I wouldn't be enslaved to uh, the, the opinions of other people. And I had more pleasure seeking him than I would at anything the world had to offer. And he showed me his ab- abundant patience every day, and he still does. And now, just like all of you that are Christians here, I get to follow and commune with, be on mission with, and forever celebrate being in the family of God uh, and be with the God of the universe forever. And that's, that's good news for the Christian. 
And if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, just want to, or this morning, this afternoon, I'm sorry, I'm still in like this morning mode. Uh, man, so glad you're here. And I just want you to know, you are surrounded by former, all former non-Christians. No one just like pops out of the womb praising Jesus. No one is a Christian because uh, Uncle Johnny's granddaddy is like, was the pastor, right? And today, my hope and, and prayer is that you'd experience, you'd hear the good news that God takes the addicted, the greedy, the perfectionist, the pleasure seeker, the messy, the insecure, and he loves to bring them into his family. Every Christian shares this story. And if you're not a Christian, we want you to be a part of that story too. Uh, in our, my church in Baltimore, we're going through uh, a series uh, in First Timothy, through the book of First Timothy. And it's a book about the household of God. It's, it's kind of like a manual to uh, a young pastor named Timothy on how the church should run, how the people of God love and act and live together as his people. And I'm really grateful that uh, you guys are letting me kind of slide in a sermon from our First Timothy series. But it's really edified our church, and I hope it'll just be uh, edifying to you uh, this, this afternoon. And before this passage comes up, what Paul is doing, he emphasizes that the chief concern in chapter 1, the chief concern of the church is to protect right doctrine, protect right belief about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And we're going to see in this passage that the culmination of right doctrine is not like a, a, a doctrinal statement on a piece of paper, but it's a transformed heart singing with praise and worship and transforming the lives of people around them. And for the Christian, the gospel should always be getting bigger. I, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a visual guy, um, so I, I brought a couple charts for you today. Um, and uh, this first one is really uh, a, a kind of a picture of what really helps me think through what it means to be a Christian, to grow as a Christian. Uh, on, on one kind of downslope of this graph, you have uh, a downward slope. This really, it's a growing acknowledgement of the depth of our sin. Now, I want to be careful. This doesn't mean you get more sinful as you're a Christian. What it means is, man, you just see how deep the rabbit hole goes. You see how much uh, the entanglements of sin affect every part of your life. That sin isn't just about not cussing and not getting drunk, but it affects your marriage or your work or your family life. And we really just see how deep it really goes. And and then on the upslope, though, we see a growing knowledge of God's character, his holiness, his love, his care, his justice, his beauty. And as we grow in a knowledge of our sin and a higher view of God, what happens? The gap gets bigger. And and what fills in the gap? I know this is a little Sunday school, but what, what fills in the gap? The gospel. Jesus. I know at Sunday school, my daughter's already learning that the right answer is always Jesus uh, in Sunday school. But uh, the cross, the gospel just gets bigger for the Christian. We, we grow to love it more. Uh, I, I think it's really well portrayed in, I believe it's the, the second book of uh, the Narnia book, the um, Prince Caspian uh, children's book. Lucy, one of the little girls, she sees Aslan, the Christ figure, again uh, after the first book, and she says, man, you're much bigger. You got much bigger since I last seen you. And his, Aslan's reply is this. He says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And so every year we walk with Christ, he should get bigger. He should get more glorious. We love him more. We cherish him more. And if this isn't happening in our life, something is, is broken, Christian. And Paul here is going to say, what's the best way we can know the gospel is enlarging in our hearts? 
and in our souls. He says we, we celebrate it. And uh, the big idea of just what I want to get from the passage is just four ways in which we celebrate the gospel, four implications of the gospel that we celebrate. And uh, before we jump in, you just heard the passage read. I just want to pray shortly for us before we jump into um, verses 12 to 17. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I, I confess, um, and we confess, I mean, the gospel can become, uh, some of us here ha- have not really heard the gospel much, and some of us have heard it a thousand times. And God, protect us from it becoming stale or, uh, or well-worn and so that it does not grab our heart's praise. And God, I pray that even in this time now, that you would enlarge uh, Jesus in our hearts now. Enlarge the gospel. Um, even give us a greater knowledge of our sin. And would that lead us to uh, a greater uh, knowledge of you, a greater appreciation of you. We proclaim now that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit's work to convict, encourage, apply your word as you see fit. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one main, well, one, one overarching idea that we are to, as Christians, daily celebrate the gospel that Paul's going to talk about here. Uh, Paul's been talking about guarding the gospel from false doctrine and teachers, and all of a sudden he seems to divert in this passage, right? He's talking like doctrine, false teachers, and then just goes into really this passage that starts in thankfulness and ends in praise, like a, like a, uh, like a doxology, right? Like a hymn at the end. Um, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love the church name. So he erupts in this thankfulness and praise almost uncontrollably. And verses 12 to 17 are this bookended with these things. And specifically, Paul is going to celebrate four things that I want to just unpack with you. Four applications of the gospel being applied to his life. That first one, the first way he sees the gospel applied to his life is point one, that that God strengthens the unequipped. He strengthens the unequipped. Listen to verse 12 again. Uh, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul kicks into this celebration of thanks. Why? Because Paul recognizes how much Jesus has strengthened him for the calling that he has called him to. And you might ask, what what kind of stuff did Paul need strength for? I can give you a long list. I'm going to give you a short list. Picture this, having this list in front of you of things that are going to come your way. Paul, uh, he got beaten within an inch of his life, what he says, countless times. Uh, He got lashes. He got beaten with rods. He was always under threat of danger from all kinds of people, he says. He was often without food or sleep. Can I, any new moms in the room, can I get an amen without sleep? Uh, often cold and exposed at home. He, he was spending lots of time loving new, messy churches and having opposition to his message everywhere he went. And probably I think the hardest thing that he had was um, many of his closest friends left him just because the work was too hard. And I want you to ask yourself, that's, that's just a short list, I could add on to that. What if you had all that stuff coming your way and you knew ahead of time that you were going to have to go through those things for the work God had called you to do? Do you think he'd be like, yeah, God, I got this, let's go. I got it all right here. Pull my bootstraps up and let's do this. I don't think so. I would not be. I would be on my knees saying, God, I, I cannot do this. There is no way I have the strength I cannot do this. Give me your strength. Give me your help. So, so Paul's telling us here that overcoming these things has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with his strength and everything to do with 
God's. And that's why he says things like this in Philippians 4, a passage you probably well know. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And friends, the same is for you. What God has called you to do, you do not have the strength for in yourself to accomplish. In whatever area you're called to minister in, you need God's strength. Your primary need is not your gifts, it's not your abilities, it's not your degree, it's not a good book or a good work ethic, although those things are helpful and good. You need divine strength. And I think the disciples are an excellent example of this, right? Picture this. You get to go to Jesus school for three years. You get to follow Jesus around. You get to see how he heals, how he teaches, how he interacts. You think after three years, you'd be like, all right, we, the charge comes. Start the church. Spread the gospel. You think they'd be ready to go, right? But what do they do right away? They hide. They hunker. They're scared. They don't do anything. Nothing. And what changes? Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. They're filled with strengthening. And then what happens? The church explodes. They go out and they're bold. They're preaching. They go to the ends of the earth. They had divine strength. We're all unequipped until he strengthens us. So if you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a kid, if you're a student, if you're a spouse, if you're in singleness, if you're a boss, if you're an employee, man, we need to pray for God's strengthening daily. I've always been astonished by um, the work ethic of uh, a late preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He accomplished oodles of things. It's kind of insane, but um, here's just a list of some of the things he did kind of weekly. He preached four to ten times a week um, of crowds of thousands. He read six books a week. Uh, He revised sermons. He did lectures. He edited a magazine. Uh, just in his like spare time, he just he wrote 150 books in his life. Uh, he pastored the largest church in the world at the time. He directed a college. He oversaw 66 charities, and uh, he raised a family. And there was a missionary. His name's David Livingstone. He saw all that Spurgeon was doing, and he just said, "Dude, what are you doing? Like, how do you do all this in a day?" And this is how Spurgeon replies. I love this. He says, you forget, Mr. Livingstone, there are two of us working. And so to each one of you, God has given you a monumental responsibility for the furtherance of your kingdom. But the important thing is you are not working alone. There are two of you. When you feel like making it here on Sundays or to small group with young kids is impossible, God's saying there are two of you. When you feel like you are just in an impossible battle with persistent sin, God's saying, there are two of you. When you struggle to get out of bed because of just debilitating anxiety and depression, there are two of you. So do you depend on his strengthening? And this is big. Do you you undertake things that seem impossible for God because you know he's there to strengthen you? Follow Christ, you are unequipped but he strengthens you. That's point one. Uh, Secondly, Jesus appoints the unqualified. He appoints the unqualified. 
Paul continues, he says, because he judged me faithful, he appointed me to his service. Think about this. Paul was appointed to this incredible service to Jesus. He was one of the few authoritative apostles. He was a beast of a church planner. He wrote more Bible than just about anybody. So you got to think, man, this guy has a, this guy must have had a resume. Like, he must have been, like, just from a young age, just been doing everything right to earn this prestigious position in furthering and, and starting and creating and spreading the church, right? But Paul's saying, like, it's actually the opposite. He says this in 13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. I like to picture Paul sitting down uh, for like an interview with Jesus, handing, handing his resume. Hey, Jesus, I'd really like to uh, be an apostle in your church. I'd love to be a church planner with your uh, church planning network. And uh, if you look at my resume there, I, I, was, uh, I started the Blasphemers Club. Uh, I was the president of the persecution team, and uh, my spare time, I love to beat up uh, just, just Christians in my spare time. I, I really think that I would be a great candidate for your church planning uh, endeavor. And, uh, but that's Paul's resume when he met Jesus, right? That's, he says it right here. Acts 8.3 says that he was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Uh, later, Paul's going to admit that he helped put Christians to death, and he tried to make them renounce their faith in Jesus. He tracked them down to cities wherever they would run to. I think there's actually a great word to describe what Paul was to the early church, or so, when he was Saul. And it's this, uh, a terrorist. Uh, Jesus uh, appoints a man who it was terrorizing the early church. And what Paul Stand, what standing did Paul have to receive this calling? And here's what he says now. Absolutely nothing. I had no standing to deserve where Jesus has appointed me to. He had no standing, no position, no experience to qualify him for what he was called to do. And he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So friends, it's only mercy. The only reason you and I can do what we do today as Christians is mercy. It's God who appoints in his mercy. We don't appoint ourselves to the influence God has given us. And so if you influence in your home, if you influence at your job or your school, another platform God's given you, remember this, it's Christ's mercy to you. And man, what a, what a difference this, if I can just kind of put this, drive this home a little bit, this makes such a difference in our kind of day-to-day um, interactions we remember this. One of the platforms or influences God's appointing me to is being a parent. I have uh, two little crazy gingers, uh, redheads, sorry, if any, uh, I'm a redhead too, so I can say that. Um, and um, man, when I have an entitled attitude of like, man, I, I'm, I earned being a dad. I've done such a great job. I, I'm this and this and this. Man, when my kids are disobedient, it's, it's an affront to me that I have little patience for. Or uh, one, of, one of the stories that um, has really affected Jen and I, my wife and I's um, story, is we've walked through a few miscarriages, and that's another sermon for another day. But um, when I'm entitled, my attitude towards grieving those is, is bitterness, is the victim mentality. God, 
why did you bring this pain? We don't deserve this. Why would you give this to us? But when I remember that parenting is a mercy, it changes everything. My kid's disobedience all of a sudden becomes an opportunity for me to identify with them and, and come alongside them as a, <laughs> as a fellow disobeyer and point them and lead them to Jesus. And, and when I remember parenting is a mercy, miscarriages turn into a painful exercise of, of trust in a good God and cultivate a, a gratitude in us no matter how long we have a kid, whether it's eight weeks or 80 years, that I can have gratitude. So when being a student is Christ's mercy to you, going to class gets to be a privilege. Man, can you imagine? (laughs) When your marriage is Christ's mercy to you, loving your in-laws is a joy or can be a joy, right? Of love to your spouse. Can you imagine that? And in this role, this platform Jesus has given you, remember it's in his divine mercy, the tough stuff can even be sweet. Quickly, Paul tells us here that the terrorizing he did, he said, was in ignorance and unbelief. This is important. No one was more zealous than Paul. He was so zealous because he really thought he was serving God. And this is such an important truth today because you can be the most zealous person in all the earth, but if it's not in accordance with God, it'll be in opposition to him. And I, I hear this a ton today. I'm sure you guys too, too. But I'll, I'll, uh, as a pastor, you get to have a lot of spiritual conversations with non-Christians and neighbors and things like that. And um, get to share about the gospel, Christianity. It's like, man, I can just tell that you were so genuine. You're so passionate. Like, good for you. You know, I'm, I'm genuine and passionate about my thing over here. You're genuine and passionate about my th- your thing over here. And we are just running together, being genuine, passionate friends, right? Um, but the problem there is, is that um, passion and genuineness is not enough. You could be striving with all your might, but you be running in the wrong direction. So the harder you run, the further you get from God if it's not in accordance with truth. Because there's only one mediator between God and man. And he's the only direction you can run at to know God. That's through Jesus. So Christian, you were unqualified, but Jesus appointed you. Third point, we're getting into the meat of the passage here. Jesus saves the unworthy. This saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So remember, Paul's responding to false teaching that's hurting this young church. And Paul says, in contrast to this unhealthy false teaching, this is trustworthy. If you listen to anything I say, if you hear anything, take this to the bank. Jesus came to save sinners. And this truth is the rocket fuel that keeps Paul going in his ministry. And it's the truth that fuels this church. And if that truth ever departed from the church or this church, it would cease to be a church. This truth that Jesus Christ, the the Son of God, literally, geographically, historically came into the world, both at the same time a helpless infant and at the same time upholding the the ruler of the universe all at once. And for the first time in history, a man, a human, 
lived perfectly, loved perfectly, told the truth perfectly. But, but the world hated him. The world hated God's actions to save us, and we killed him. And Jesus suffered the wrath of man, and more importantly, the wrath of God for our sin on the cross He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again as proof that his payment for sin worked, was accepted. Before raising, he, or before ascending, he appeared to hundreds of witnesses, and he returned to heaven. He said, why did Jesus do all this? He says, to save sinners. In his own words, Jesus would say, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christianity is the only religion in the world for bad people. Every other religion or worldview preaches the gospel of do good, be better, and you will be accepted. Jesus' gospel is you're, you're not good. Receive me and my goodness as a gift. And if you're not a Christian, or maybe if you are, the biggest obstacle to probably anything I've said so far is these three words. Uh, four words. You are not good. You are not good. When I, I kind of cut my teeth in ministry doing campus ministry, and one of the things we do is kind of like an evangelism tool called these perspective cards. And they would help you just get a feel on whoever you were talking to, get a feel for their worldview. There are these different cards. You would lay them out. And it would help you discuss different worldviews about human nature, about God, about, um, uh, about salvation, things like that. One of the categories was human nature. And there were five cards or options that people could choose uh, on human nature. Um, number one, human nature is perfect. People are perfect. Second option, human nature is mostly good, but a little bad. Uh, third option in the middle, human nature is neutral. And uh, fourth option, human nature is uh, mostly bad, a little good. And then fifth option, human nature, people are broken. And uh, I, I got to do this a lot with people. And what do you think the most popular option was? Talking to, you know, university students, I think this would apply well for our context. Uh, number one, perfect, mostly good, neutral, really not that great, broken. Like, what, which one do you think they chose? Any guesses? Feel free to put up a number. A lot of twos, fours. Yeah, twos and fours. Uh, by far, 90%, two. Man, we're, we're mostly good, just a little bit. I mean, I've done some stuff, but I'm mostly good. And there are those really bad people over there, you know, the Hitlers, the Stalins in history. I mean, so there, there's got to be some bad out there, but I like, I definitely make the cut, right? I'm mostly good, um, and, and, and I get it. I, I've spent my whole life before Jesus convincing myself and to others, I, I'm really, I'm a great guy. I'm, I'm worthy of respect. But something changed when I met Jesus. Uh, there's a rapper, his name's Lecrae, he says this really well, I like this quote. He says, you don't measure up because I met the ruler. Yeah, it's kind of a dad joke. You don't measure up. I met the ruler. I was using the wrong ruler. I was using the wrong measure. I was comparing myself to other broken people. I think about it like this. I love uh, one of my hobbies, or, or really my only one hobby, uh, I'm saying now that I have kids, is um, fly fishing. I love to fly fish. 
And I love to go to like these mountain streams, little mountain streams, and catch these little brook trout. They're just like, I mean, like a big one is like 10 inches. And I would, you know, me and my friends would go, and we'd fish and catch these little trout. And we'd catch like a little six-inch one. Be, oh, man, cool. We'd catch an eight-inch one. Oh, man, that's, that's a pretty big one, man. We'd catch a 10-incher, you know, about that big. And we'd be like, whoa, that is a monster, man. We'd take pictures and all that stuff. And I, want, I remember, I have a funny memory. I, I took a friend that usually does saltwater fishing out. And I, I call, we caught one of these 10 inches. I was like, dude, check out that monster trout. And he's like holding this little thing. And he's like, what are you talking about? Monster? This thing is 10 inches. I'm used to going in the saltwater to catch like 10-foot marlins. Like this thing is a minnow. This is tiny. And friends, when, when we compare ourselves to other broken people for our measure of goodness, we're comparing ourselves to minnows, not the marlin. God is the marlin that we're meant to be comparing ourselves to. We don't measure up. We don't compare. We fall far short. Because even with the, and you don't measure up. You aren't good. You aren't worthy of God's love. But it's Jesus that takes us as we are. And this is good news, not bad. Because even with this acknowledgement, knowing the worst things about you, honestly, probably more than you do themselves, Jesus says, I still want to save you. I still want to love you. I still want to be with you forever. I still want you to be in my family. And if you're not a Christian, this is really important. What the scriptures, what Jesus is calling you to is not religion. It's not do good, be better. It's, it's saying come exactly as you are. Come to me and I'll take you just like you are. And for those of us that know Christ, this is a great encouragement for us to model ourselves off the life of Jesus I love this title that Jesus, it was an accusatory title. All the religious people in Jesus' day, one of the ways they would accuse him to say, this is evidence you're not from God. Look at this guy. He hangs out with the, the sinners. He hangs out with the tax collectors. He hangs out with the people that are messy. He can't be from God. Jesus was a magnet for messy people, people that knew they needed grace. He loved spending time with people that wanted uh, mercy. They knew they didn't have their lives together. And man, if we follow Jesus, we're going to have the same magnetism for messy people as Christians. The hard neighbor, that awkward classmate, uh, the really annoying employee, we will have a magnetism towards those kinds of people. And we do this because every day we get to wake up with our hands open saying, Jesus, I was a sinner, but you saved me. We're unworthy, but Jesus saved us. Last point, quickly, verse 16. Jesus is patient towards the unrepentant. He's patient towards the unrepentant. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what he's saying is the purpose of Jesus' mercy to Paul wasn't just for Paul. It was for Christians in Paul's time and throughout the ages, spanning all the way to us to be in awe of Christ's perfect patience. Think about this. Paul was ravaging Christ's most treasured possession. The, 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 the people that Jesus laid his life down for were being beat up, thrown in prison, killed, persecuted, 
imagine how you would feel if your most treasured possession, your most treasured relationship, that person was being hurt. How would you respond to the person hurting them? Oh, you, I've, justice, call the cops. Like, you were going to jail, sucker. I want nothing to do with you, right? But Jesus was compassionate. His perfect patience led to the, the conversion of Jesus' chief opponent. And Paul's saying this and saying, friends, Jesus has the exact same patience for you. Before you followed him, Jesus' patience was overflowing until you turned to him. Jesus was patient with me as I was parading around as an imposter for years before I came to Christ. And and even now, when you're quick to get anxious, when you're slow to believe his promises, when you're quick to grumble with other people, what's his response? Is it the disappointed dad? Is it the quick to justice? No, it's, it's his perfect, tender patience. Too often we imagine God as just this disappointed dad that is like, come on, again? Really? And friends, when we let the good news of his patience sink down in our heart, we start to receive and exemplify the patience that we really need every day, don't we? Um, man, if you get a tough roommate that never does the dishes, I was actually that for Steve. Um, you can ask him about that later. <laughs> man, God worked in his patience. If you have young kids that just love to test the fence of rebelling every day, every hour, or you have a tough mother-in-law or a tough boss, man, we need patience, don't we? And in your impatience, I want to encourage you, slow down. Reflect and remember Christ's abundant patience towards you. He was a lot more patient with you than you need to be with whoever you're thinking about. And draw strength from his patience for you. Because you were unrepentant, but Jesus had perfect patience for you. So these are, these are four applications, four uh, ways that the gospel plays out for us as Christians on our own. We are unequipped, we're unqualified, we're unworthy, we are unrepentant. But Jesus is gracious. He qualifies us. He equips us. He shows mercy. He's patient. And that is good news. And that's why Paul doesn't stop there. He ends in verse 17. What does he say? I can imagine him like almost singing this. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying when the cross gets bigger, your praise is going to get louder. Recounting the story of becoming a Christian should be this recounting of praise and thankfulness and worship for us. And one of the things we love to say, and I think this is probably true for you guys at your church, but we would love for every Christian to be able to tell their story of how Jesus has changed their life. And uh, I, I like to say it, tell your testimony with Jesus as the hero. I think every Christian should be able to do that. But the problem I struggle with, uh, and many Christians struggle with, is this Jesus is the hero part. And and I got another chart for you. I think this will help you think through this. But compare how Paul talks about his side of the story and Jesus' side of the story in his testimony. His story of, of how Jesus has worked in his life. Paul says, I thank him. Paul says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I acted ignorantly. I received mercy. I'm a foremost sinner. That's not very flattering. What does he say about Jesus? Jesus gave me strength. Jesus appointed me. 
Jesus judged me faithful. Jesus' grace overflowed. Jesus displayed his perfect patience. It's a little bit of a Sunday Sunday school question again, but who is the hero of Paul's story? Anybody? Jesus, yes. But so many times, friends, when I hear Christians share their faith story, I hear something like this. I, I went to church, and I realized some really important things about myself. I, I took the Enneagram, and I realized I was Enneagram 7, and that made me think about this and this and realize this about my personality. And then I studied a lot of Bible, and then I decided to do this, and then I led this ministry, and then I get into essential oils, and blah, 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 blah. I'm awesome. Who's, this, who's the hero of that story? I am. Christian, I, I, I want you to hear me carefully now. You, you are not the protagonist of your story. You are the antagonist. You are the evil villain of the story until Christ saved you from yourself and your sin. Look at Paul's telling of who he was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was the chief of sinners. He does not play it down. He doesn't shave off the hard edges. When you make yourself the hero of your own story to yourself or to others, you steal credit from Jesus. You confuse non-Christians who need to hear about the enormity of God's grace, and you dilute the importance of Christ's work in your life when you're the hero. So what about you, friend? When is the last time you shared your story with Jesus as the hero? That's just only one application I want to leave you with. I would encourage you this week. Uh, whether you've never done it before, whether you've done it a hundred times, man, for three to five minutes, share uh, the story of how Jesus has changed my life, either when I came to faith or even just how he's been changing your life the last year. With him as the hero, you can even do it with someone in here this week. As we close, I, I just want you to take a moment to consider your life. The question that Paul, I think, would ask us is, is the gospel celebrated regularly in your life? Do you have moments of of awe of the mystery of God's love for you? Is your life marked with gratitude? That almost, you almost feel like you're being surprised by the enormity of God's grace at at certain moments. And does that celebration lead you to, to talk about him? To talk about how he's changing your life to those around you? If not, there's no shame here, but it's a good check engine light for you. Of saying, for some reason, the gospel is not growing in my heart consistently. Because true gospel growth is always, always, always going to be reflected by gospel celebration. Because the gospel of Jesus is not a one-time reality, but it's a daily feast. We daily, daily celebrate the gospel as our lives and those around us get to be transformed. He's the hero of all our stories. He gets all the praise. He's worth fighting for. So let's praise him for his grace. And let's pray together as we close. Father, I confess that I am so slow to do what Paul does here, which is to magnify my weakness, to magnify who I was, um, to boast in weakness so that the gospel would be bigger so that you would be bigger and so i i just pray that you would change us i pray that um 
that the gospel would be enlarged. I pray that in the hearts of brothers and sisters here at Doxology Church, God, that you would enlarge the gospels even in their hearts this week. And it would not just transform their lives or transform this church, but it would draw others in to know you, to see, man, what, what is going on with this life that is transformed with gratitude and celebration in hard circumstances? God, thank you that you've strengthened us. Thank you that you give us mercy. Thank you that you give us patience. And God, I, I pray for our muscles that have grown weak in this room on remembering those things to be true. I pray against shame and discouragement and defeatism for the Christian in this room. God, they would rest in your deep love and delight. As you hold your people as precious. And God, I pray for those that have never held the gospel as precious before, that haven't trusted in Jesus or haven't gotten to see the preciousness of Um, of your love for them. God, I pray that they would step into that, not step into uh, a moral code, but step into the grace of Jesus, even now. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.